0: Good morning. Today is the day. This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice. We will be glad in it, even if the headline news tries to drive us in a direction other than rejoicing. It is Friday, September the 27th, 2019. I'm Carmen LaBerge. Welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Um, I'm going to start off this morning with a headline that you may not hear from secular outlets, and that is that the Trump administration. Uh, is has I'm going to use the word proposed because it hasn't uh, it doesn't go into effect with uh, until there's consultation with Congress. But that is ordinarily um, a fairly minor step in this process. And so you're going to see headlines possibly that say the Trump administration has lowered the number of refugees permitted into the U.S. to a mere 18,000. In other places, you will you will see it more accurately reported that the proposed refugee cap uh, announced by the Trump administration last night is 18000 Again, consultation with Congress is still required, which means that right now, now, literally now, like now, is the time for you and I, each of us and all of us, to advocate on behalf of persecuted people around the world. Uh, we talked about this two days ago Um with Drew Griffin, we've talked about it yesterday. With Alan Cross, we have talked about it with Matthew Sorens uh, from World Relief. We have talked about it uh, with Jenny Yang. We, we've we've had this conversation over and over and over again. Uh, we are already operating at historically low numbers in terms of the refugees that we receive uh, into the refugee resettlement program here in the United States of America. These are people who are not just immigrants um, seeking to come across the southern border. These are people who have been through a rigorous process. Um, over a long course of time. They literally cannot go home. They need a new home, and we are now saying that we will not be home to them. Uh, slashing a refugee cap to 18000 would effectively shut down every refugee resettlement program in this country. Why is that? Well, because you can't afford to do the work um, if the cost of doing the work for each individual rises so high, and so the cost of resettling every refugee rises dramatically when the number of total refugees uh, is reduced to something uh, like eighteen thousand. Um, you know, keeping in mind that these people often arrive as families. We're talking here about a really, really small number of families that the United States would be willing to resettle um, here. So, uh, again, you're you are going to hear alarm from some uh, evangelical corners because this is probably going to result in uh, the closure of some of our premier refugee resettlement programs. Um, But American jobs lost and American lives disrupted by this is really not the story. Our moral failure, our collective moral failure as a people to take responsibility for other human beings in utter desperation. Yes, Christians and other religious minorities who will now surely die because our great nation is somehow not great enough. Our resources somehow not sufficient enough. Our God somehow too small to let people come. Um. Alan Cross described it yesterday as the golden door. So we're just not going to let anybody come through the golden door? Again, no one is saying that we should allow anyone and everyone into the United States. But people who have been singled out and herded up and driven from their homes and stripped of their material resources and are now running for their lives from religious zealots who see Christianity as a threat, those brothers and sisters, those kids, having been vetted through years of scrutiny by the refugee process, those people in my view, should have some hope one day of having life. Instead, we, we, the greatest nation on earth, we, the United States of America, we, through the government of we the people, we are robbing desperate people of their hope. So what does that make us? Well, one thing it surely does not make us is great by any definition of the term. And so today, I implore you, I rarely do this, but I implore you, I want you to consider the plight of the world's most vulnerable people. I want you to consider uh, the plight of Yazidi women and girls. I want you to consider the plight of persecuted Christians in the Middle East. Consider the plight of the more than 70 million people living right now, displaced from their homes. And I want you to ask yourself, how great is our God? And how great is our capacity of a people to love the least of these in our own generation? So we cannot deny that we know what's happening to them. We can't deny the horrors they're facing. So today's the day. Today's the day to tell your member of Congress, uh, give them a call. I'm going to go to the Hill and advocate the first week of November on this subject with the evangel- evangelical immigration uh, table. Um, your, your member of Congress is going to be home for the next two weeks. This is a topic you must raise with them as a Christian. Um, all right. Up next, Mark, Caleb Smith, and I are going to talk about all things impeachment and where we're at in the formal impeachment inquiry related to the president of the United States. That's up next, here on Mornings with Carmen. All right, returning to our conversation on what I'm describing as day three of impeachment inquiry, the formal version. Uh, Dr. Mark Caleb Smith is here with me. He is the director of the Center for Public Studies, the Political Studies, Public Studies, Political Studies at Cedarville University. He teaches courses in American politics, constitutional law, research methodology, data analysis. Uh, He has all of the required credentials to do so, and we're privileged to have him here with us. Uh, Dr. Mark Caleb Smith, welcome to Mornings with
1: Carmen. Uh, My pleasure to be with you, Carmen.
0: Okay, so it's a delight to have you. Um, I've thought about uh, several different approaches we could take today um, because uh, there will be people who are not yet up to speed on why we are even in the midst of a formal impeachment inquiry, uh, how that is different from the process that it has felt like we have been in since the day this president took office. Um, And then, you know, developments yesterday. So um, I'll just let you pick the story up where you want to. And then I'll backfill as necessary.
1: Yeah, I think it really started when uh, Speaker Pelosi announced that the House is going to undergo, as you said, the impeachment inquiry. And that all seems to be connected to the, the publicity surrounding the phone call between President Trump and President Zelensky of Ukraine. As the details of that phone call became a little bit more public over time, uh, the pressure on Speaker Pelosi began to grow for impeachment. And as you know, this pressure has been growing for uh, really since early 2017, when President Trump even took office. Uh, The progressive wing of the Democratic Party has been looking to impeach the president. And this, this phone call and the details surrounding it seems to have given Speaker Pelosi, at least in her mind, the necessary kind of public story to begin the impeachment inquiry. And of course, as you know, the last couple of days, we've seen details begin to emerge about the phone call. We've seen the actual complaint that was filed in relation to the phone call, and things are beginning to move, uh, it feels like, very quickly.
0: So a few things that happened yesterday, um, some people who, you know, are not names and faces that would be known to most of the American public, the acting director of national intelligence, his name is Joseph McGuire, Uh, he... um, gave testimony on the Hill in a uh, in a congressional, um, what do we call that, uh, a, a hearing, in a congressional right. hearing. And uh, there was a really bizarre beginning to that congressional hearing where Adam Schiff, who chairs that committee, instead of reading what was widely available, uh, which would be the transcript of the conversation that uh, the president of the United States and the president of Ukraine had back in July, instead of reading it, um, Adam Schiff actually offered a parody, which he described as a parody, um, of the call. How unusual is that? And um, and does that concern you in terms of the seriousness of an impeachment inquiry?
1: Uh, it's highly unusual, uh, but Congress itself sometimes can have unusual characters connected to it. That's for sure. But uh, given the stage and given the gravity of the moment, uh, frankly, it was bizarre, uh, and you know Democrats this whole during the whole trump presidency, I think Democrats have really struggled to maintain some perspective when it comes to President Trump and to sort of pull in and to be a little bit more moderate in their approach to things uh, Representative Schiff, I think, is an example of the uh part of the Democratic Party that I think is struggling under the spotlight and struggling to maintain that that sane face i think, and so yeah i think I think it was a bizarre moment. Uh, But honestly, I think this is probably the first of many bizarre moments we're going to encounter over the next several months.
0: So we're going to take a a really quick break. Uh, When we come back, Mark Caleb Smith, who is uh, a professor at Cedarville, and he's also the director of Cedarville's – well, let me get it right because I said it completely wrong the first time – uh, Center for Political Studies at Cedarville. Right. Um, um, Mark and I are going to talk about some of the characters involved, because I think that's important for us to understand who who we're talking about when they're lifted up in the news, um, and then uh, where we're at in this impeachment inquiry process, and maybe, maybe what we can expect uh, in the uh, immediate future. So you're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I am sifting and sorting through things with uh, Dr. Uh, Smith here. We're talking about American politics and our interaction uh, as Christians in the conversations of this day. We'll be right back. Continuing my conversation with Dr. Mark Caleb Smith. He is the director for the Center for Public, uh, Public, Political Studies. I apparently want it to be public studies. Could you do something (laughs) on some public studies because... I I clearly want this to be about something in the public. So there you go. It is what we're doing in public together as political beings in a political system. It's the Center for Political Studies at Cedarville University. Um, Mark, thank you, first of all, for uh, having a good sense of humor about the fact that I can't quite get your title right.
1: (laughs) That's all right. You know, I've had many worse things said about me. That's pretty mild.
0: Well, um, all right. So jumping back in, we are talking about the formal impeachment inquiry. Right. Into the President of the United States. And I think that really okay. at issue, it seems to me, based on what I heard yesterday, um, by the testimony for the Acting Director of National Intelligence, Joseph McGuire, I heard him say yesterday um, when asked the the question about the greatest threat. So here's a guy who actually knows all of the threats that we're presented with, uh, you know, as a country. Um, And he distilled not only this conversation about impeachment, but he distilled all of the challenges that we're facing globally and internally as a country. And he pointed to one concern that he has that rises above all the others, and that is the threat, any threat to um, maybe what we would describe as the sanctity of the U.S. election process. Tell us why that's the issue that that rises to the level of really dominant concern for both parties in this conversation. This is a conversation ultimately about the sanctity of the U.S. election process.
1: Well, this really goes back to at least the 2016 election. Uh, One thing that everybody agrees on that comes that came out of the Mueller report, of course, the long investigation of the Trump White House was that there's clear evidence that Russia interfered with our election in 2016. You know, The argument in the report was whether or not the White House was involved in that in any way, but really the highlight should be uh, Russia's involvement, and not just Russia's involvement, but the ability for foreign actors and for people who do not have the U.S.'s best interests at heart to try to manipulate our electoral system through many different ways, but try to manipulate the system to achieve their own goals and their own ends so they can use social media you know they can use um fake posts on Facebook and fake Twitter accounts and try to steer public opinion they can create events that don't occur and try to get people to actually come to events that haven't occurred and haven't been scheduled they're basically trying to sow discord in our electoral system and the way that the system is so open and the way that most people get their news through social media and other contacts today means that we're really ripe for this sort of thing. And that's kind of the informal part, of course. The more formal part would be, will they wage cyber warfare on our actual electoral system? Will they try to hack servers as they try to do in Florida, it seems? Will they try to get into uh, networks that link machines together and then end up reporting results? And that's really the area where I think all of us, uh, it, it would sort of be a nightmare scenario for an election to happen and for all of us to be scratching our heads is what really just took place.
0: Okay, so in the in the what really just took place category then comes in, uh, you know, I'll introduce the reality of the lack of trust that we have in the media to report actual events. Um, And so when you talk about, let's say, fake video or fake audio, um, how do how do I know? Right. And this is like honestly, like, how do I know that the audio that I've been hearing that supposedly leaked? From what was supposed to be a private event that the president held yesterday in New York City related to the uh, new UN, uh, U- U.S. ambassador to the U.N. How do I know that the audio that was leaked from that event is really the president saying what I hear him saying over the air?
1: Yeah, I'm not sure that you do. And, and this is, uh, we, you know, we've been hearing reports lately from computer scientists and other people who are at the sort of the the, the sharp end of this whole thing. They're arguing that it's going to be indistinguishable. Uh, Fake video and real video are going to be indistinguishable within the next few months. And I don't know how we're supposed to survive that process as a people, uh, say when a rival campaign could doctor a video of whatever, imagine the worst case scenario, throw it into the public, and it's impossible for us to distinguish about what's true and what's not. Um, You know, we've been living for so long with this idea that seeing is believing. Well, what happens when that goes away? What happens when what we're seeing we can no longer believe? Uh, and I agree with you. We don't have the we don't have trust in our media institutions. At the same time, we don't have trust in our government. And if we're candid about this, as believers, people don't have trust in authority. Period. And this is putting us into an unusual cultural moment, um, and I think a very unpredictable moment as we look ahead. All
0: right. So when we. W- one of the things when you say like, "seeing is believing," I'm reminded that as Christians, um, believing is seeing. Like, right? I can't right. actually sure. like I have these eyes of faith with which I see things that other people cannot see because I believe. So when we talk about these um, these unique moments in time, um, speak to uh, speak to our listeners right now. Who are Christians? I mean, you no. Know, speak to us about the unique opportunity that we have as Christians to be people who um, are fiercely committed to the truth wherever it leads, right? And and fiercely committed to um, being people who sow peace and not discord.
1: Yeah, I think it's a great opportunity that lies in front of us, honestly. I mean, our political system right now and our political culture is very polarized. Um, It's toxic. And I'm not describing any particular view or any particular party or any particular person. It's just a very polarized situation right now. And as information comes out and as people make accusations, uh, I think the best thing that we can show is some discernment and that we don't rush to judgment, to draw conclusions, even when those conclusions might fit our preferred uh, candidate or our our preferred party. It's good to take a moment to wait, to have some caution before you begin to think about what the truth is or is not. You know, as you said, Paul calls us in Ephesians to be people of truth. We're to be children of the light and children of the truth. You know, in Matthew 5, Christ tells us to love our enemies. You know, even if you think you've figured out what the truth is, and even if that truth puts someone that you disagree with in a bad light, we have an obligation to love them because they are created in God's image. And by loving them, we share the gospel of Jesus Christ with them in the process. And those things are true in politics as well as they're true in everyday interactions that people may have. You know, I think we have a real opportunity here to be, to truly be salt and light within the political system. And as you know, the political system desperately needs it. And I think this is our chance.
0: When we use the word political, when we think about the political system, I want you to address um, people who are living right now in places and spaces where they don't really feel like they are a part of the political system. But at its at its most basic level, the way we govern ourselves here in the United States of America, it means that the political system goes all the way down to the individual citizen. So could you just speak to that?
1: Oh, absolutely. Uh, When you look at our founding documents and when you look at our founding political culture, it's very clear, as you said, that our and our system of government, ultimate authority lies within the people. And even though we don't feel connected to the government often, and even though it's in Washington, D.C., or in my case, it's in Columbus, wherever it may be far away, we don't feel connected to it. But when when you and I interact with people on a daily basis and talk about politics, that's part of the political system in our form of government. That's our chance to persuade people of what's good and what's right and what's true and of what, for what our political system ought to be um, you know, shooting for, what kind of goals it should have. You know, when you interact with your relatives over Thanksgiving dinner and political issues come up, that's part of the political system, believe it or not. And so it isn't just simply a member of Congress making a decision and voting for a bill. It's also me and you and our networks of friends and family uh, and other extended people talking about these things in a way that hopefully brings some truth and some love as opposed to discord and, and the distrust that we see so much around us. And so, yeah, I think people need to understand that all those interactions that they have with people where these, theme- where these themes come up, they have a real chance there. You can either push people closer to Christ through what you're saying, or you can pull them farther apart by being uh, hateful and by being uh, disagreeable.
0: So in terms of the uh, the calendar in Washington, D.C., uh, yeah. tonight, tonight, Congress goes on you know, recess and they're on recess until October the 14th. Right. I view this as a really a real window of opportunity for people who are not going to go and advocate, you know, on the Hill. But right. they can they can reach out to their own member of Congress right where they are. If if somebody wanted to reach out to their member of Congress about whatever it is that concerns them as a citizen, I want you to encourage them to do that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. This is the golden chance to really have that kind of an impact. Uh, Over the next couple of weeks, all of them will be having events in their home districts. Uh, You know, that might be in schools, it might be in public areas where they're going to take questions. And if you contact their local offices, they all have local offices that are somewhat near us, contact their local offices and find out what the schedule is. Find out where they're going to be. Show up at those places where they're going to be. Take an opportunity to ask questions. Take an opportunity to introduce yourself. And to meet them and, and not only them, but the people that surround them and the other people that are interested, you know this is their big, their biggest chance to get input directly from the citizens as we look at this extremely complicated and difficult issue that's coming down the pike, and this is the kind of impact I think that will matter. you know people might be tempted to file an email or make a phone call, but this kind of face to face interaction or going to a town hall meeting I think that's really where you can, where you can have the biggest influence.
0: All right. And let's be sure that when we go, we uh, we tell them that we're praying for them and we do so in ways that doesn't sound like a threat. So there you go. Absolutely. That'll be my that'll be my walk off. So, Dr. Uh, Mark Caleb Smith from Cedarville University, thank you so much for being with us today. We look forward to talking with you in the future when I will actually learn to say political <laughs> studies instead of public studies. <laughs> I promise. It's my pleasure. I, I appreciate promise. it. Thank you. All right. We'll be right back. All right. uh, So let me ask this question, because when we start talking about, um, well, not only things that are political, but when we talk about where I opened today, which is a a conversation about refugees and refugee resettlement, we, we pretty quickly get into a conversation about just how different our neighbors are from us or just how different we are from our neighbors. Maybe that's a better way to approach this. So when you consider just how different you are from the people who live in immediate proximity to you. So when I when, when I use the term neighbor here, I'm going to actually talk about people who live in physically close proximity to you. I want you to think about your neighbors. I, think you, I want you to think about whatever constitutes your neighborhood, whatever you, you think. Of. I mean, I live out in the country, so it's not like a neighborhood like in, in suburban America where I live. But I obviously have neighbors. There are people whose houses I drive by to and from everywhere I am going. Those are my neighbors. Do I know them? What do I know about them? Those who have just moved in, have I welcomed them? Um, and what does it look like when our neighborhood is a dorm at a college? And and how, how many differences can there be in that community of people? Well, increasingly here in the United States of America, our neighborhoods are becoming more and more diverse. Not economically so, but cert- certainly culturally and religiously so. We're going to talk next uh, with... Um, with one of the guys uh, who co-directs Neighborly Faith. His name is Kevin Singer, and we're going to talk about actually talking with our neighbors who are different than we are in terms of the things of the faith. So it's called Neighborly Faith, and it's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Money plays a big role in our world and our relationships. Hi, this is Callie Breeze with Thrivent, helping you be wise and thrive. Money is a powerful force, whether in a country, a marriage, or a business. For me, what Jesus said about serving two masters really sums up money's power. If you are serving money or material things, you can't serve God, and vice versa. We were created to live in community, in relationship with others whether it be our families, our neighbors, or our friends. When we put money first, it can get in the way of healthy relationships. Money and material things are what God gives you to manage, but relationships centered in love are the why of our time on earth. I'm Callie Breeze with Thrivent, helping you be wise and thrive. joining me now is Kevin Singer from Neighborly Faith. You can uh, you can find Neighborly Faith online at neighborlyfaith.org. Kevin, welcome to Mornings with Carmen.
2: Thank you so much for having me. So great to be here.
0: Oh, it's wonderful to have you. You um you have a podcast. Tell us about that.
2: Yeah, so uh, we basically came to realize uh Chris and I were co-directors with Neighborly Faith. We were graduate students at Wheaton College in Wheaton, Illinois, and uh, one of the things we we realized when we were there is Uh, the evangelical Christians who are doing good multi-faith work, um, sort of faithfully living out the gospel with other faiths, they're not going to be on the front cover of Christianity a Today a lot of times. They're not going to be on the front cover of other of other Christian media. But we still need to feature their stories. We still need to get their stories out there to sort of normalize, hey, like it's it is deeply Christian to be engaging our neighbors of other faiths in positive and constructive ways. So we started the podcast to sort of feature their stories and to actually feature the stories of American Muslims, too, because it's when we hear other people's stories, I think, that we begin to humanize them and see them as made in the image of God.
0: So, uh, folks can find uh, you online and that online at singerwriting, like singer, like your last name, mm-hmm. although singer mm-hmm. would also be a person who sings. singerwriting.com. Yeah. <laughs> do you sing in addition to write?
2: You know, I was asked that a lot in elementary school. Um, ah, see. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know I, you I, know, I grew I up as a fowler. <laughs>
0: like, my, my maiden name is Fowler. And so people always want to know, like, are you good at catching birds? And I'm like, no, but once I get you in my snare. There is very little that's going to get you out. Okay, so welcome yeah. to the Fowler Snare this morning. Um, <laughs> all right, so Kevin, why, um, why do I need, why, as an evangelical Christian, why do yeah. I need to concern myself with care about the fact that I have neighbors who are right. people of other faiths?
2: Right, right, right. Uh, So I I think for a few reasons. One, I think uh, Jesus commands us to make disciples of all nations. I think that includes people of other faiths. A lot of times I think we think about people of other faiths in a global sense, like, oh, they're sort of across the world in these different countries that we can visit with our churches and perform sort of mission trips. But we don't actually realize that those people with those very same worldview identities are literally right across the street. Like we could literally walk across the street, knock on their door, and ask them to have dinner. Like that opportunity is right there in front of us. We just have to begin to think about our our religious neighbors – as people who are um, deeply American and people who I think have a lot in common with us. And I think those conversations, if we're generous, if we're hospitable, if we're good listeners can open up the pathway to some really incredible spiritual conversations if we, if we just give it the chance. Um, I also think part of it, too, is when I look at the person in the ministry of Jesus, I think of someone who reached out to those people on the fringes of society who maybe didn't have a voice, people who faced a lot of discrimination, people who uh, faced a lot of trouble um, gaining capital in society. And I think about American Muslims and how they're the most discriminated people group in our society. What would it look like if evangelical Christians were the most hospitable and generous group to that fringe group of people? who uh, don't get the benefit of the doubt, who don't uh, get love, who in our society very often, I think it would say a lot to our country and to our neighbors if we reached out to groups like that and we were the good neighbors that Jesus called us to be.
0: So at Neighborly Faith, uh, one of the things that you guys are doing is equipping college students to do this. And when I think about about the college campus— I think about uh, dorm life or apartment yeah. life, and and these are uh-huh. definitely the environments where I suddenly have neighbors living in really close proximity to me, um, who I don't know, with whom I am forced to do life. They cook stuff that smells weird. Um, sometimes they speak <laughs> languages I don't understand, and they yep. don't. And and they think I'm they think I'm weird because I get up on Sunday morning and I go to a place yeah. called church. Mm-hmm. So talk yeah. about why talk about why college campuses are so critical and why evangelical Christians on college campuses are so critical um, to this conversation right now.
2: Yeah. So college students are, are uh, really passionate. They've got a lot of time and energy and investment in social issues right now. But they're also the future of the church, and that includes the evangelical church. They will be the next generation of pastors, missionaries. And here's the thing. A lot of these kids, they grew up with pluralism. It's not strange to them. It's not awkward to them. A lot of them just expect it. Like when I walk into a workplace or when I—frankly, if I walk into a church or to one of my neighborhoods, like I'm going to be— with uh, people of other worldview perspectives, people who believe deeply different things about the world, about politics, about life, about life's biggest questions. Uh, So these are students who have been thinking about this, whose college's curriculum has been focusing a lot more on this in recent years. I was actually really surprised to find out, I work on a national study of interfaith engagement in college, come to find that Christian colleges are actually far and away educating students for interfaith diversity more than any other institutional type. These are evangelical colleges where students are reporting that they're actually learning about other faiths, visiting other places of worship, leading in interfaith campus initiatives. It's really incredible. I mean, a lot of our work with Neighborly Faith is actually on Christian campuses because we're finding there's a lot—it's— I mean, these campuses are incubators for uh, students who are really zealous about getting to know their neighbors. And so even this past week, we're at Gordon College here in Wenham, Massachusetts. Last night, we packed out a room with like 300 students who are just interested in, okay, how do I engage my Muslim neighbors in ways that... Uh, are loving and hospitable, because we're not seeing great models for that right now in the church, but we're eager to find out how to do that. And so it's actually on Christian campuses where we found the most traction, um, because I think students in this particular generation are really serious about sort of how can we be a church that really reaches out, a church that really loves our neighbors.
0: So we just talked yesterday to a Gordon grad. Um, His name's Mm -hmm. Carter Crossett, and he's Mm -hmm. now uh, a student at Duke Divinity. Um, so he might hmm. be an interesting conversation for, partner for you going forward. One of the things he shared with us yesterday uh, is that uh, the chapel service at Gordon is actually the largest gathering of evangelical Christians um, in in the Northeast. I find that really wow. extraordinary. Like, right? Wow. That's really yeah. extraordinary.
2: I'm going to be um, there okay. in 20 minutes, so. <laughs> well,
0: oh, you're going to have a great time. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay. So uh, I recognize that there are now people who just heard you say what you said, that Mm -hmm. uh, evangelical university campuses across the United States of America are some of the most fertile soil for conversations about um, other faiths and understanding people of other faiths, Um, which means that there are going to be students who go home for the first time at Thanksgiving and they sit down at table with people Mm who um, are paying their good money for their kid to be in a Christian environment. And they are now going to be stomping mad that Mm -hmm. their kid— you know, this this is not about strengthening them in their faith. This is about exposing them to people of other faiths. Could you mm-hmm. equip parents and grandparents and aunts and uncles and neighbors to um, uh, receive with hospitality students who are learning these things right now? Because <laughs> I yeah, think this you, is hard. I think this is really sure. hard.
2: Sure. So take, take the words of, of Jesus in Matthew 5. He said, let your light, shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your father who is in heaven i think we forget that in order for our light to shine before others we need to be with others and a lot of times i think when we're confined to our sort of very christian communities which again those communities are critical for sanctification uh, for regeneration and salvation and i i don't want to knock that i've got a great church community myself and But I think what we have to realize is, is if we have any hope on living out uh, the imperatives of Christ about being a light on a hill, being salt of the earth, we actually have to be present in the lives of people, even people with whom we deeply disagree and have serious reservations about. Because I, here's the thing, our ministry is not going around saying like, Hey, like all your concerns about Islam and all your concerns about Muslims and all your concerns about Islamic terrorism are totally unfounded, totally ridiculous. There's no merit to them whatsoever. Our ministry is going around and saying, but nevertheless, they're still worth our love they're still worth our witness, they're still worth our presence, and they're still worth gaining their trust for the sake of showing them the person and the love of Christ. Here's the thing. We have a student in our fellows program. Her name is Carissa Zafiro. She's a junior at Taylor University. Uh, She comes from a small Midwestern town in Ohio, and she approached her church board of of baby boomer uh, folks, and she said, hey, I want to bring the church to a mosque. And there were one or two people on the board who were like, no, 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 never, absolutely not, never. But there were a few people who were like, you know, let's do it. I feel like we, we really get to need to be in the lives of these people. Turns out after the visit, they had a conversation for the very first time about Islam. in in a way that they actually had real Muslims in their heads. It wasn't just this sort of theoretical Islam. It was real Muslims blocks away from their church that they had never gotten to know. And the amazing thing is at the end of the discussion, they said, you know, I would love to have those people in our church. I would welcome them to my dinner table and to my church anytime. So there really isn't a person out there who, if they just keep in their heart the realization that Christ calls us to love and to go – that couldn't uh, think about this work in a positive way.
0: Uh, it, it, occur, it occurs to me, the mission field is really now right next door. Like we are talking yes. about neighbors and we're talking about neighborly faith. All right. The website is neighborlyfaith.org. You need to check it out. We're going to continue our conversation with Kevin Singer from Neighborly Faith here in just a moment. We'll be right back. Oh, church,
1: and put your arm around. Hear the call of Christ our God
0: talking with Kevin Singer from Neighborly Faith. You can check out what we're talking about and everything they're offering at NeighborlyFaith.org. Neighborly Faith uh, works on college campuses across the country, tilling that very fertile soil of what we might uh, think of as um, a place where we live in very close proximity to people who are often Mm -hmm. very different than we are. And that's good practice. That's good. um, That's that's good training for what life is increasingly like in America's neighborhoods. Um, talk with us about uh, the changing landscape of the American culture in terms of faith. And mm-hmm. uh, and and so why as Christians, you know, it, it, it's really less about me being um, equipped to share the gospel on the other side of some uh, geographic right. border. And it's more about me living my faith in such a way that the person living right next door to me is um, not put off by my Christianity Mm -hmm. and where I'm inviting them into our home and ultimately they're inviting us into their home that we can genuinely learn, um, you know, one another's perspective. I mean, that's what it feels, that's the cultural Mm -hmm. moment it feels like we, where we have arrived.
2: Right. So uh, it's actually interesting. So one of the things I don't do is I don't peddle around campuses, this idea that, you know, every year we're becoming substantially more religious diverse, like you will never walk into your favorite restaurant again and see someone who looks like you. That's not that's not what I tell people. What's interesting is, I mean, in terms of the growth of Islam in America, it's only about one hundred thousand more each year. And, and, and Muslims only make up about one, maybe two percent of our country. So in relationship to how big we think that it's funny, if you if you survey Christians, they'll say, "Ooh, Muslims, 30 uh, percent. You know, twenty five. It's because they're
0: okay. So it's because it's distinctive. It's because when I see a person who is um, a practitioner of Islam in my community, I I recognize it because they're distinctive because they are choosing to dress in a way that is consistent with their cultural and religious identity.
2: I don't look
0: around and see non-religious people in the same way.
2: Right. Right. Absolutely. There's a distinctive sort of physical mark of their religion, which they get discriminated a lot for. um, Which which I view
0: instead as an invitation.
2: Like, yeah,
0: absolutely. Shouldn't that be an invitation? Somebody is wearing something that's culturally, religiously distinctive. So I've had yeah. um, you will you would like her a lot. Um, Audrey Frank, if you don't know, yeah. her, you should get to know mm-hmm. her. OK, so mm-hmm. she's been on a couple of times. For those of you listening, we've talked about Covered Glory. She did a yeah. little uh, mm-hmm. uh, Arabic um, mm-hmm. uh, splainer for me on some words the last time she was on um, this in, this this treating it as an invitation instead mm-hmm. of a, a isolating influence. So talk about that. Talk about just walking into conversations yes. and asking questions and being interested and curious.
2: Well, here's the thing. I've asked Muslims before, how can I show you as an evangelical that I love you, Mm -hmm. right? Because I think I think I know what I need to do to love you, but you may have a totally different perspective of what it means to be loved. And and, and it's interesting for Muslims, one of the big things they tell Christians is they say – ask me questions that don't assume the worst about me. A lot of times mm. what Christians do is they walk into conversations with Muslims and, and we ask them questions that, you know, like, well, what do you think about terrorism? Or what do you think about misogyny? Or what do you think about, you know, education in the Middle East for women? And, and it, and it kind of leads off with this perspective, like, I already assume the worst about you. Prove me I'm wrong. And there's, I don't think we want people to do that to us as Christians. Like, you know, tell me why you're not a Trumper right? Tell me why you're not a bigot. Tell me why you're not a white supremacist, right? Like, we don't like that. And so to love our neighbors as ourselves, we have to ask questions that are far more neighborly. Like, tell me the earliest memory you have of the Muslim faith. What do you like about the Muslim faith? What do you think about the person of Jesus? What, what, do, you, what do you
0: do? What do you do when you, when you go worship together? Like, you know, right. what's going on right. in there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. It's simple questions. Hey, yes. uh, we've, we we're out of time. Can you come back? Like some I would love line. to come
2: back. Okay. I love this so,
0: show. So um, Neighborly Faith is the uh, is the website. For those of you uh, who really your, your curiosity is now hugely sparked, I want you to go to neighborlyfaith.org. They've actually got um, an event coming up the first couple of days of November on the Wheaton campus. But they do stuff all over the country all the time on campuses everywhere. Um, and there's great resources here for any of us, all of us, who want to be really great neighbors to people of other faiths. And so check it out, neighborlyfaith.org. Kevin Singer is going to come back which I'm thankful for. Thank you.
2: Thank you, Carmen. I love being here. Uh,
0: All right. We'll be right back. All right. So that was fun. Uh, Sometimes I talk to somebody and I just think, uh, I want to talk to them again. I might want to talk to them frequently because they are thinking about things and doing things that we need. We need help with. I don't know about you. I need help in this area. Um, I have people uh li- who live you know geographically not very far from me and i i don 't know what 's going on in their places of worship and um and you guys know me i 'm like not afraid of any conversation and yet starting conversations with people who are like recognizably really different than me it 's hard and maybe the first conversation's not hard like i've I think i 've shared with you in the past like i 'm good at that initial stranger conversation. I'm then not good at like the follow up, actually cultivating a friendship and those kinds of things. So we're having Kevin back uh, so he can teach us how to do what at least I don't know well how to do. Uh, Maybe you don't know how to do it either. So there you go. Um, Okay, I am. uh, How much time have I got, Paul? Because I don't even I don't even have a clock. Okay, so um, we have talked about impeachment a little bit. We have talked about immigration uh, in terms of refugees. Let me remind you um, on that subject to check out the conversation that I had yesterday with Alan Cross um, and make an appointment with your member of Congress when they're home the next two weeks. All right, we're going to take a break, and then we're going to be back for a whole another hour. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app.